Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. How much do you know about Parkinson's disease? Did you know that there are nearly 17,000 Minnesotans living with Parkinson's? And our state has one of the highest rates of this chronic disease per capita. One million people in the U.S. have the brain disorder, including celebrities like Ozzy Osbourne, Michael J. Fox, and Neil Diamond. You may know Parkinson's as uncontrollable movements, maybe hands that shake, but there's a lot more to it than that. This hour, a neurologist will tell us about the latest research, and we will get a lesson in hope and strength from a Mankato couple who practices and studies resilience. Let's bring in our guest. Dr. Paul Tuitt joins us this morning remotely. He's a neurologist with M Health Fairview and a professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Good morning, Dr. Tuitt. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here today. Oh, thank you. And here in the studio with me, I have Sue Olson. Sue is a Mankato mother and gardener. She was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2021. And she, again, is here in the studio with me. Hi, Sue. Thank you for making the drive to be on the on the program today. Oh, glad to be here. Hi. And Dr. Robert Olson is here. He is Sue's husband. He is also a psychiatrist at Mankato Clinic and has started studying resilience since witnessing Sue's emotional strength. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for making time to be with us. Thank you, Angela. Great to be here. So, Dr. Tuitt, let's start with an explanation of what Parkinson's disease is. I I realize that I really don't know a lot about this condition. Give us a definition of Parkinson's. So, Parkinson's disease is a degenerative brain disorder. Um, What's interesting is that some people know they're going to get Parkinson's or we think they know because of loss of smell uh, not related to COVID. That can occur decades before, 10, 20 years And some people also act out their dreams during dream sleep. They move, kick, talk, scream, do various behaviors. And so there's a lot of research at the University of Minnesota looking at people that have this precursor to Parkinson's disease. So that's some of the first symptoms you might see, loss of smell, sleep behaviors. And then subsequently, the diagnosis is made when the disease is affecting motor areas of the brain Mm -hmm. that affect movement. Slowness, stiffness, tremor are some of the hallmark cardinal features of Parkinson's. So I mentioned in the introduction, uh, many of us associate Parkinson's uh, with those uncontrollable movements, the shaking. Why, why does that happen? What is going on in the brain that causes that? So the misnomer is that people shake. Not everyone who has Parkinson's shake and not everyone who shake has Parkinson's. So if you see someone shaking, don't assume it's Parkinson's. Don't assume it's essential tremor. That's one of the challenges of sorting things out. So Shaking, again, it's the most visible piece, but it's not necessarily the most disabling feature. So if you watch the show Shrinking, they talk about a lot of the other aspects of Parkinson's that doesn't get any press. So how are people Mm -hmm. feeling? That's what Bob is going to be talking about today, the resilience. What is that person experiencing? Uh, So it's the movement stuff that we see. We can evaluate for slowness and stiffness, but there's a lot more than just uh, how people move or don't move or have that is important to address. I've never heard about the, the symptoms, the loss of smell, and the acting out the dreams. Tell, tell me more about that. Uh, I, I have very vivid dreams, but I'm not aware that I, I kick and, and act them out. Uh, that, is, that is unique. Yeah. Um, not everyone who has that dream enactment behavior, and uh, Colin McKinnon and Mike Cowell are doing work with that at a large national study. And so some people who have that feature 
develop Alzheimer's, some people develop Parkinson's, so it's an area mm-hmm. in the brain stem deep in the lower part of the brain that is important in um, usually suppressing those movements during dream sleep, but with some misguided signals, the dream becomes actualized, physical, uh, you know, can be vocalizations or movements, and it's different from restless legs, so sometimes you have to kind of tease that out in the history. And let's talk about age. At, at what age would, uh, or is there a typical age that people start showing those first signs? The average age is 58, 60, but, you know, I've had patients that develop Parkinson's age 18, a genetic form, some people 25, I've had patients 30, some people that are 80. So <clears throat> it's a bell-shaped curve of age of onset. Mm-hmm. So if someone has symptoms, they have a loss of smell, they have sleep behaviors, they have some changes in the walking, a frozen shoulder. Those are all things that you put together a couple pieces and um, it's time to talk with a professional. Uh, Yesterday I saw someone, the wife made the diagnosis. She said, honey, you have Parkinson's, you should go see a neurologist. So often people um, review their symptoms and think about it and then they're sort of aware that maybe this is what I have. Well, this is my next question. What brings people in the office to see you? Uh, how, you know, how is it diagnosed? You know, someone, this couple comes in, how, how do you do a diagnosis to determine it is Parkinson's disease? So what brings people in the office? That's a good question. Do men seek health care? Do women seek health care the same degree? Uh, there's no. some gender disparity. <laughs> so sometimes this wife didn't bring in her husband. She said, go in. So she wasn't there for the visit. But mm-hmm. you sometimes have different partners that are coming in, different couples uh, that, you know, they're concerned and they want an answer. So it may be um, tremor, but not everyone has tremor or just they think they're aging, they're slowing down, their voice is softer, their handwriting smaller, all those things that kind of add pieces together. And it looks more like Parkinson's clinically. There are other people that you think they have Parkinson's, but you've followed them for many years and it's not Parkinson's. So it's sometimes a little challenging just clinically if it's not straightforward textbook uh, tremor, stiffness, slowness. And sometimes we do tests like a dopamine brain scan, or now there's some interest in doing skin biopsies to find protein abnormalities in various distributions of skin. Um, MRI work, we're doing some MRI work with the University of Florida looking at iron and changes in water in the brain. Hopefully the FDA will approve this as a possible test. Um, So later today, after this visit, I have a person with an atypical Parkinson's and they're coming in for our MRI study to kind of look at it. So it's not a validated test, Mm -hmm. but it's working to get past the finish line to be approved. And I read something um, from the Parkinson's Foundation website that says uh, diagnosis in uh, Black Americans is often delayed because Parkinson's is often thought of as a a disease that mostly white people get. Uh, Do you see that in your own work? So um, there's lots of disparity in care. As you know, there's barriers to care that occur. We do a fair amount of deep brain stimulation surgery. We're one of the first pioneers. And if you look at the data, African-Americans don't get referred for deep brain stimulation. They don't get care at that highest level. They don't get diagnosed sooner. Um, Those are things that have been described in the Manhattan study that was done a few years back. So Yeah, I mean, in the metro, we're fortunate that we're starting to see a lot more patients of color and uh, that are coming to our clinics in Maple Grove and uh, Woodbury and Minneapolis and Edina. So we're distributed in the metro. So people at least reduces that physical barrier. We also do virtual visits like most clinics. 
some of those patients, you can kind of help them get to clinic. I mean, that's the point of the major challenge is getting someone, the mm-hmm. transportation, family support to get in to be diagnosed. We really see that as an issue. Cook Clinic is trying to improve, improve their outreach to the community in Minneapolis. And so there's some interaction with our group, with Eric Maurer and uh, Leo Almeida, to kind of enhance that uh, awareness in communities of um, that are marginalized. And that, Dr. Tuit, before I get to our, our two other guests to talk about uh, receiving this diagnosis and, and living with it, uh, I want to know about the treatments. Uh, so you get a diagnosis, then what? What treatments uh, are currently available for Parkinson's disease? So this gentleman yesterday, we talked about um, treadmill exercise. So one of the big interests in Parkinson's is exercise uh, as a treatment, as a potential a means to slow the progression. So there's a large federally funded trial that taxpayers, all the hopefully listeners are aware, they're paying for the study called the SPARKS-3 trial. Everyone gets exercise and we're trying to see if it does slow progression. It, it stabilizes disease. That's sort of the goal of that study. So before people are on medication, we promote exercise, physical therapy, big and loud therapy, things that might help them move better, help their symptoms, Help the course of disease. So that's the first thing I try to promote is the research on exercise, or if not that, then just getting to a physical therapist, speech therapist to work on their function. Medications are important. They're only half the battle. Um, mindfulness, this uh, aspect that Bob and his spouse will talk about today, will be that aspect of Parkinson's so important in addition to the physical therapy and medications. Medications aren't going to fix the disease. They'll help alleviate symptoms, though. And there is no surgery. Surgery is available. So patients who have intractable tremor, maybe in the first few years, might come to deep brain stimulation. But typically, it's after five, seven years. Um, and we, you know, we have a federally funded UDOL center. Uh, we have researchers that are developing new methods of stimulating the brain, alleviating symptoms. We're working on gait and balance. Some of the things that aren't well treated with medication, we're hoping we can alleviate those, Mm -hmm. do it in a safe uh, fashion. But 10%, 20% come to surgery. Most people don't want surgery. Some people don't qualify for surgery. So it's it's a discussion Mm -hmm. with many patients along the way. What are your options medication-wise, alternative medication, supplements, various things, surgery, so we, we work with our pharmacists, Natalie and Catherine. They're promoting kind of comprehensive care to help people understand what might be best for their care. If you're just joining us, we're talking about Parkinson's disease. How much do you know about Parkinson's? Uh, I want to hear your stories. What questions do you have about Parkinson's disease? Uh, and if you or a loved one has been diagnosed with Parkinson's, how have you coped with it, both mentally and physically? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651-227-6000. Or you can call 800-242-2828. Uh, Dr. Tuit is there at the uh, University of Minnesota Medical School, a neurologist at M Health Fairview, uh, really laid the groundwork for us, and I appreciate that. But but now there's an, another important element to this, and, and I want to talk with uh, Sue and Bob here in the studio with me uh, to get their personal story. Uh, Sue, uh, you you were already a breast cancer survivor. When right, you, when that's you, correct. When you got a Parkinson's <clears throat> uh, disease diagnosis just two years ago, um, how how old were you at that time when you got the Parkinson's disease? I was 60. You were 60. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about these the, the first symptoms that you experienced. The doctor just described it could be a variety of things. What did you notice? Yeah, well, for me, uh, it was kind of an 
a, a longer pro- well, and I think that is typical for for some. It's it's a not easy to diagnose. It's not straightforward. And I had been seeing a neurologist for a while, but I have I had um, initially very stiff muscles. Um, I had unsteady gait. Um, oh, issues with I had lost my sense of smell, um, which which is an interesting concept in and of itself. But so even um, before COVID, you were having right, right? exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> you know slowness. Um, my handwriting was getting smaller, but. All these things were happening, and then I started to get a tremor, and um, that I, I think that kind of tipped the scales. And you know, we did a trial of <clears throat> carbidopa levodopa, which is kind of the medication of choice to to rule out or rule in Parkinson's. And in my case, it stopped um, many of my symptoms. And you know, here I sit two years later. And, yeah, you know, I, when I walked in the studio, I'm like, you are the picture of health to me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You look wonderful. Yeah, and, and, and vibrant I, I and work strong. at it. You know, yeah. I, the exercise, as he mentioned, is, is so, so, so important. And I, I work at, you know, eating healthy and exercising and staying positive. You know, mm-hmm. there's, so, there's so much to, um, so much to live for, and you, I just don't want to get bogged down in the fact that, you know, I essentially got struck by lightning twice in the same place, to coin a phrase. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that was, you know, the initial shock of that was crazy. But um, I, like I, this just I mean, can't be possible. I can't. Yeah, there can't be yeah. something else. Bob, I'm sure you played a, a, a critical role in, in identifying some of the symptoms. Uh, Sue just described stiff muscles, unsteady Unsteady gait, meaning what does that mean? You're, you're walking kind of strange, or she she fell a few times. Mm-hmm. Well, I continue to do that and can yeah. Yeah. <laughs> regularly falling with some mm-hmm. frequency. Loss of smell, uh, handwriting getting smaller, and then the tremors. Where where were the tremors noticed, Bob? What do you remember about that? Uh, she had tremors on her left hand, arm, and it was quite noticeable. Um, Doctor Davidson made the diagnosis, which we appreciate, and. You know, I woke up this morning and I thought about resiliency. And what came to mind is acceptance, how that is, there's several resilient factors. We touched on the exercise. Um, Dr. Tua talked about mindfulness. What is mindfulness? It's living in the moment. Uh, Sue has a strong faith. Her optimism, her positive outlook instills hope, confidence, but it, it's just been inspiring to me. I went through all the resiliency factors this morning, and Sue has them all. <laughs> and I'll, I'll progress from there. It's made me a better psychiatrist, uh, instilling hope in my patients with those same resilient factors. So this is as complicated for Sue. She already is, is a breast cancer survivor, gets a Parkinson's diagnosis. You're a psychiatrist like in training, but now you're having to practice something um, that could be beneficial, would be beneficial to you and your wife. So what was it like for you when, when she got the diagnosis? Well, it was a shock, um, a grieving process. You go through the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, grief, acceptance. But as soon as we both came to the acceptance part, it helped us deal with the diagnosis better. Define the word resilience. Resilience, overcoming obstacles, uh, mastering 
life's challenges. They can be a a small issue. They can be a gigantic issue. It can be dealing with several medical issues, stress within your family. We All of us face opportunities to use resilience every day. Sue, uh, you said you had the breast cancer mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. So how did you get through that and... and- and and is there something you learned from going through the breast cancer treatment that prepared you to for the fight against Parkinson's? Well, I don't know if anything prepares you for for um, those that that type of news and to receive it heavy news like that twice. But um, I, I I I'm a person of gratitude. Um, I heard actually a sermon in church about 25 years ago and it was a, it was about gratitude and he challenged the minister challenged us he said this will be life changing for you over the next 2 weeks every morning say to yourself before you heat fit before your feet hit the ground one item of gratitude there's something there's always something you can be grateful for and i did that and it was life changing and i'm still doing it to this day 25 years later and I think when you have an ad, they call attitude of gratitude, mm-hmm. it makes a tremendous difference. You can get through anything if you're grateful. I really believe that. Dr. Tewitt, uh you've heard the story. What, what do you have to say about the, 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 the attitude of gratitude and, and how it can be helpful in the treatment of Parkinson's disease? What have you seen in working with your patients? Uh, so I, I tend to take the, I change the language. I don't like the term, it's a fight, a battle. This is a brain disease. You can't fight yourself. You have to, you're on a journey. And the journey is, Sue and Bob have a team and they have a community that's supporting them. So you have to kind of look at it as who is you going to be with you on your journey? Who's going to help support you? Your physician, your family, your friends, <clears throat> your exercise group, whatever. That's part of the important piece and then also to be uh, gratitude but also reward yourself i mean i told someone you know yesterday have a piece of chocolate do something you know it doesn't have to be lots of calories but it's just something just make sure you find some if you can a moment of laughter or joy it's hard for many people and that's why again the program shrinking the harrison ford is tearful for 15 minutes because there is a sense of loss it's challenging it's difficult you don't ever quite accept it because you're you're dealing with this day to day. Sometimes you're not aware of it, but sometimes it rears its head and, and kind of affects your ability to do things. So mm-hmm. I, I think you know I think we're all covering this from different slightly different angles, but I think it's important is the positive aspect as much as you can get to something that's challenging. We're starting to get some phone calls, so I want to bring in our listeners into this conversation about Parkinson's disease. What questions do you have about Parkinson's? And if you or a loved one has received this diagnosis, I want to know, how have you dealt with it? How have you coped mentally and physically? Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Let's take a phone call from Andover. This is Dave on the line. Good morning, Dave. What do you want to share with us? Yes. My wife, we're in our mid-70s. She's uh, 76. I'm about to turn 75. And she was diagnosed about 12 years ago. And um, she was 
just in the last few years of a, a long-term career, and um, where uh, she was aiming to work where she would have 30 years in at the place she worked, and she was unable to do that. She ended up having to leave work uh, when she was 64, and she was able to live at home uh, for you know just about the last 12 years. And uh, a number of months ago, it just became untenable for me to be able to give her the care, you know, the constant care that she needed, uh, consider uh, concerning mobility and just um, help with you know, the daily functions. Uh, she can walk some, but she's uh, uh, subject to falls. Uh, she can pretty much feed, you know, feed herself, but um, you know just regular routine daily tasks became, you know, unable mm-hmm. uh, for her to perform. Right. And um, so for the last few months, uh, she's been in a, a long-term care facility where it's a, it's a very, very uh, uh, good facility. It's got a very good reputation and they get, you know, good, good care there. Um, so, you know, I go and, you know, visit her and spend time with her every day. Well, Dave, I, I can I can hear the, the, the love uh, you have in your voice for your wife. And, and I'm just curious, have you had the support that you need uh, as a caregiver uh, as you, you know, follow along her in this journey with Parkinson's? Well, <clears throat> I don't know if I'm a strong person or I don't know what... Uh, qualities, you know, I have that help me uh, just, you know, deal with it. I just, you know, accept the uh, situation that we're in and um, I'm just, you know, able to just go from, you know, day to day mm-hmm. and um, like I say, I go, you know, spend a number of hours, you know, each day, you know, with her. And um, I'm sure uh, she she loves to see you. Does she light up when you walk in the room, or or does she continue the conversation? She, yeah, she enjoys you know, <laughs> seeing me come. Yeah. And um, you still have your to do list. Does she does she make sure? Are you taking care of things at home, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, like I said, it, it's just so sad, and you know, there, there's people with different. Uh, afflictions in mm-hmm. the uh, facility where you know where she's at, and she's still pretty sharp. Um, you know, mentally her cognitive ability. She's a very bright uh, person and had a high high level, uh, very responsible job. And um, you know, like I said, it uh, just you know became un untenable for her to be able to right. finish her career that she wanted to get 30 years in. and Her life changed uh, drastically. Dave, I want you to stay on the line because I really want uh, uh, Bob and Sue to be able to talk to you for a moment. Uh, Bob, Dave, like you, his wife got a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And as you listen to what he's just described, Bob, what would you share with him or what have you learned uh, in your own journey? Well, I, I was thinking about you, Dave, uh, what you're going through and Resilience factors that that jump out for me is you're positive, mm-hmm. you're facing the fear, mm-hmm. you're 
you're dealing with it. You're supporting your wife. Um, you have accepted it. Um, you're living in the moment. And, and that is, those are resilience factors that you are demonstrating. Um, and you're speaking as a husband, but also as a psychiatrist. Right, right. right. And, and the other thing I want to make sure that you are taking care of yourself, Dave. So other resilience factors that could help you, exercise, um, determination, uh, realizing there's going to be better days and not so good days, um, and believing, you know, using your faith. Um, that has helped a lot of people. And maybe and, just and, talking about it too, like not carrying it as a secret, but being able to share the, the story of what he's going through with other people. Yeah, Sherry, the fact that you're calling in, you're you're benefiting listeners right mm-hmm. now. They're listening to your journey. And that's part of why Sue and I are here today. We're trying to help people on their journeys. Well, and interestingly, I, I'm quoting a friend. I'm actually, she sent me a text message this morning, and th- this, these were her words. Open and frank conversations need to be had. So many people isolate themselves and don't talk about their issues, fears, or concerns. Seeking out help and sharing experiences is the healthy way to deal with struggles or illness. That That's it right there. I think that transparency piece is so important, and I learned that through my through my cancer initially my and, and all that I went through with that, I chose to be transparent, to put it out there, and it made it so much easier for me, if easy is, is the right word, um, easier to get through. And it helped the people around me because they understood it better. They understood what I was going through rather than keeping it all to myself. Mm-hmm. They could re- It was easier for them to reach out. Right. right. I mean, transparency is, is so critical to get the support that everyone needs. Mm-hmm. Dave, if you've tell, mm-hmm. told your family, friends, they'll check in with you. Mm-hmm. How are you doing? Uh, when I share with my patients, my wife has Parkinson's, maybe I'm relating much better to other people that have Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Um, they sometimes ask, how's your wife doing? And that provides an inspiration to them when they're dealing with with their Parkinson. Dave, thank you for calling yeah. in today. Was that, that helpful being able to talk uh, to, to us about it? Yeah. Um, and the, Minnesota has such great uh, health care systems, and uh, specifically, uh, there's a clinic, Struthers Clinic, that deals uh, just with uh, Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. And there's a great neurologist there that my wife has worked with. And like you said, it's, it, you know, tr- trying to get, you know, some exercise. Um, she's pretty much confined to a wheelchair now, but she can do some, some walking and, um, you know, they have her stand up and do some, uh, exercises. There's a, uh, occupational therapist and a physical therapist that work mm. with her. Well, I, I'm happy that that, that that you all are getting uh, quality care. Um, again, thank you, Dave, for calling yeah, in. Yeah, like I said, uh, we're, we're fortunate. We've got very good insurance. Mm-hmm. That's and, all. And um, that, I mean, just the, the, the financial uh, it's huge. strain it puts right. on a lot of people. 
Uh, uh, Dr. Tewitt, I want to ask you a question. I said in the introduction that Minnesota has a high rate of Parkinson's. What do we know about that? Why? Why is it uh, more common in Minnesota than other states? So Dean Johnson, uh, retired state senator, asked that question at the university, and Joe Vatsumoto, a neurologist who unfortunately passed away recently, went out to Wilmer and gave a talk about that actual question. And so one of the crucial aspects of Parkinson's is the disease of aging. So as we have an aging Mm. population, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, we're in sort of the gray belt. Uh, And so one of the factors that he outlined was, hey, this is a this is related to your demographics shifting. Mm. That's one factor. There are also conflicting data on, you know, are we the highest? Are we not the highest? Does it really matter what our right. number is? It just matters. There's 16,000 people plus in this state that have Parkinson's. Can we prevent it? So Ray Dorsey, his proponent, he's the guy at Rochester, says, how can we end Parkinson's this book? Well, we know trichloroethylene, environmental toxins, there's rotenone, paraquat, various things that are in our water, in our air. We have this air quality concerns going on, you know, mm-hmm. higher incidence of degenerative disease. If we don't have clean water, if we don't have clean air, we're going to be looking at more problems with degenerative disorders. And so there is there was a study we commissioned, the state taxpayers funded, called the Petal Study. So we're working with Barrow, the Muhammad Ali Center, kind of look at what's in Minnesota and uh, in terms of is there anything specific we can come up with in terms of why Minnesotans get Parkinson's and can we prevent those sorts of things. And just to outline, you know, David mentioned care uh, um, around the state. I mean, every healthcare system in Minnesota, it seems, has specialized Parkinson training. So you go Alina, Health Partners, Park Nicollet, VA, uh, Samford, uh, CentraCare, all the listeners around the state, Essentia, St. Luke's, all the physical therapists get certified in Parkinson therapy. So hmm. regardless of your community, look around. There'll be people to help you uh, with your Parkinson's. So it doesn't have to be one specific group, mm-hmm. place, location. There's plenty of people out there. If you haven't found the right person, keep looking. Uh, let's, um, let's... I don't know if I answered your question about oh, that's a... Parkinson's. Yeah. I, I want to get uh, more phone calls in from listeners here. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, in Lakeville, Judith is on the line. Judith, thank you for waiting. And, and what do you want to tell us about Parkinson's disease? Well, I guess this is a question as much as a fact. My husband passed away from Parkinson's over 15 years ago. At that time, we lived in Wisconsin, but I still think we're neighboring states. His Parkinson's manifested in inability to move, not in tremors. And I'm wondering how common is that? So stiffness. Uh, Dr. Tewitt, what do we know about stiff? Uh, Sue, you said you had so, st- had stiff muscles, correct. right, Sue? Right. Yeah. Uh, 75% have tremor, uh, 15% don't. So, you know, it's enough people have uh, don't have tremor. That's why they're often a delayed at diagnosis. And, mm. and also it may be their non-dominant side. Parkinson's typically begins asymmetrically, so the right or left side, it's sort of random. And if you're right-handed and your symptoms begin on your left, you may be unaware with no tremor and just stiffness, you're, you just thought, oh, maybe I have a shoulder issue. So that's one of the delays. The diagnosis is non-dominant onset of symptoms mm-hmm. and uh, no tremor. So. All right, before we take a news break, I want to take one more phone call. Lots of people calling in to uh, share their stories and ask questions about Parkinson's disease. Uh, this is Angela in Maple Grove. A- Angela, are you there? What do you want to ask or tell us about Parkinson's? 
Hi, can you hear me okay? I can, certainly. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you for the call. Let me call in. Um, I have a question for the doctor. I've had Parkinson's since I was 27 years old. I'm now 48 years old. I have the genetic form of Parkin, the Part 2 gene variant. And I, my predominant uh, symptom that causes me the most issues is balance issues and um, slowness of movement and tripping on things that aren't really there. Uh, imaginary rocks, as I like to call them. Um, but uh, balance is probably my biggest concern. And I take the medication that I'm supposed to, and it helps tremendously. And I see a movement disorder specialist. All those things are great, and I'm just about ready to walk into my exercise class. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, you mentioned earlier about treatments that are now for, specifically they're working for gait and balance issues. Because I know DBS is primarily for tremors and that kind of thing. Can you tell me a little bit more about what kind of new treatments are available for gait issues and balance? Mm, Dr. Tewitt, okay, so, uh, Angela has had uh, Parkinson's since she was 27. Yep. Yeah, so we that's um, Parkin is a, a recessive mutation, so I assume you have two copies of that abnormal gene. Sometimes people have one Parkin, and they may have a different mutation or a different factor. So it's uncommon. Uh, 15% or so of Parkinson's disease is genetic. So there is an ongoing study called a PARC, uh, a PD generation. Uh, people who are interested can go online. You get a saliva, send in a saliva study. Struthers is help organizing this test along with the Parkinson Foundation. They do seven genes. It's free. Um, it's to help uh, identify some of these uh, genetic forms of Parkinson's. There is a more extensive testing that we do for people that have a strong family history and don't find it with those seven free genes. So in terms of DBS, uh, the misnomer is DBS is just for tremor. It's for stiffness. It's for slowness. It's for wearing off. So if you're having freezing of gait or gait problems that relate to a medication cycle, that's something that DBS might help. However, there are other people that don't get benefit um, or aren't ha- they're having what's called on freezing. So even if their medicines are working, they're still freezing. So What's going on with that? I think we're still trying to figure out, is there a better area in the brain to stimulate? Is there a device that people can wear, like vibrating insoles or socks or things that kind of help um, people with that problem's initiating movement, where their feet stick to the floor? We call it freezing. It's either in small spaces or turning or starting. So there's still, you know, not great treatments yet. So our interest is looking at gait and balance and freezing and trying to understand it better. One of our groups here is looking at ankle proprioception. So how do you know where your ankle is in space? Is there a relationship to freezing with that? Um, and that's really important because freezing may relate to your brain not actually knowing where you are in space and sort of um, it affects those mechanisms of motor programs that help you walk and turn and move. So. Mm-hmm. Keep boxing, keep doing your exercise. Um, You're not missing any cure at this point that we have that will say it will fix it for sure, but there are some things that can be tried. Um, With genetic forms, the interest is coming up with gene-based therapy. So if you have an LRK2 mutation or a GBA mutation, there's trials Mm -hmm. to treat people with those specific mutations. So we're, we're behind the cancer field, but we're moving slowly toward having individualized medical treatments for people. Let's uh, take a phone call from St. Paul. This is Linda that's on the line. Linda, thank you for calling in. And what do you want to tell us? Oh, thank you for letting me call in. Um, my dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's 
in his early 70s, and he um, did really well physically for 13 years or so. Mm-hmm. And um, we thought he had these uh, cognitive uh, troubles that some uh, Parkinson's people can get because he was sharp until his last couple of years. And so I just wanted to um, add in, because I, I didn't hear that, um, I think we were told that about 20% of Parkinson's patients do suffer cognitive issues. And uh, it started with hallucinations and went to delusions. Mm. And that was the hard part for him. He stayed active until the end um, physically, but but the cognitive was what made it really hard for him to understand. And, and hard and for it, you, hard for you as well, I imagine, spending time with him. Yes, he, yes, mm-hmm. it was, he would be uh, in terror. He had terror episodes where he, you know, mm. he had delusions that were really, that were, we got help from his doctors and things about how to handle it. But it was, um, that was something that we didn't expect. Um, Thank you, Linda. Uh, Dr. Tewitt, what can you tell us about this, uh, the loss of cognitive skills uh, and hallucinations and delusions that um, our listener just spoke to? Yeah, these are unfortunately all too common. But again, when you're, we, I think as Bob and Sue, you ha- we try to get people to focus on the here and now. And so some of these really tough conversations we don't have at the outset because we're wanting people to keep active and keep functioning. And as the disease progresses, um, many people do have uh, delusions, hallucinations. I mean, I was just seeing something on Robin Williams. You know, he had Lewy body dementia, which is a more rapidly evolving Parkinson condition with dementia. So, um, and um, Mondale's wife, Joan Mondale, had Lewy body. So those those confusional episodes, hallucinations are the hallmark of advanced many years of Parkinson's and also of Lewy body disease. Casey Kasem, another person with Lewy body. So. Mm. There are treatments, albeit not perfect, that are antipsychotics. There are cognitive enhancing medications that can be tried. That's usually our, um, and removing um, unneeded medicines that might be causing those, like bladder medications. Some bladder medications can aggravate cognitive problems. So we try to eliminate meds, add antipsychotics, add cognitive enhancing medicines. But unfortunately, these problems are really challenging for everyone. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, we we try our best to be supportive. There, we need more geriatric psychiatrists. We have neuropharmacologists, pharmacists that are working with our patients because it's it's a challenge. I mean, sometimes you go into the operate, uh, go get surgery for your hip, and you you're hallucinating because you're on a narcotic medicine, and and things mm-hmm. take a while to settle back down. Sue and Bob, I I, I want to get back to, to you to talk more about the mental health aspect of this and and depression. Um, Sue, how do you describe? You know, we talked about when you first got the diagnosis, but what have you done since then to make sure that you did not become depressed about this? Um, well, I mean, I I have dealt with uh, depression and anxiety from the Parkinson's, and I am taking medication for it. Um, I think that's important to say and not to be afraid to bring that up with your provider. Mm-hmm. Um, to ask yeah, for help. Ask mm-hmm. for help. Put it out there. Um, but I will also say that for me, I I live in the moment. You know, we, we touched on that. Uh, um, doctors had, had mentioned, you know, you, you can't get too far into the future. You know, I know my future isn't going to be what it is today, but I try to stay present, mm-hmm. be here, 
And today, in this moment, it might be this hour, it might be this day, you know, what, but just focus on that and not get too far ahead of yourself because you don't know exactly what's going to happen. I have a good idea <laughs> what's going down for me in the future. But um, stay focused on, you know, on, um, I think hope is important. You've got your children, for myself, my children, my grandchildren. I have wonderful network mm-hmm. of friends. Um, I'm involved with things. I um, I have about an acre of gardens that I tend in the summer that Ooh. brings me so much an joy. A- really? You mean I'm seriously? Yeah, seriously? Acre. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, it, it's finding the, the good, the positives in life, and you expend far less energy focusing on the positives than you do if you focus on the negatives. Mm-hmm. That. That that's just all too consuming. Being intentional, mm-hmm. making time yep. to be present and think yep. about the positives. Uh, Bob, what can you share with us about what you've learned about resilience and what you tell people about resilience that's helpful? Well, there's all those resilient factors. We've touched on some of them. Um, there is a fair amount of depression amongst Parkinson's too, and there are medications available, as Sue mentioned, um, antidepressants. There's also therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy, positive thoughts, positive feelings, positive behavior, negative thoughts does the opposite. Um, Continue to do what we've talked about. Can't emphasize social support enough. Um, What does that mean, social support? Social support, uh, your friends, your family, um, reach out, ask for help. Also, provide help when when you can. and that that is so important. And take care of yourself. Eat healthy, exercise, get enough sleep. The patient and the caregiver. The patient and the caregiver. Um, other factors that we may have not touched on. You know, meaning, purpose, and growth from what's going on. Um, P.J. Fleck, uh, row the boat, motivational phase, following the death of his uh, infant son from cardiac problems. Never give up mantra. Casey O'Brien, osteosarcoma, football player for the Gophers. He had a great attitude, attitude again. Three three phrases, wake up, kick butt, repeat. <laughs> That's how he lives his day. And again, back to what Sue said, mindfulness, live in the moment. That is so important. And you can take classes on mindfulness yes. as right. well as meditation. You can read about it. There's lots of available information out there of, of how do you practice mindfulness. Right. right. And in your work as a psychiatrist, are you finding more people are interested in mindfulness and, and practicing it? Yes, definitely There there is more interest. And another thing I cannot overlook is I have this diagram in my office Picture a giant donut. You've got the middle of the donut, things I can control. Then there's the outer ring, Mm -hmm. what's out of my control. That helps resilience so much. Whenever we're stressed, I try to ask myself the question, is it something, what can I do about it? Um, Should I avoid venturing into the outer ring? Mm -hmm. And it can be something fairly simple. It can be something more complicated but that we need to try to lower our stress level. And, mm-hmm. you know, when the pandemic came down three years ago, I have never practiced psychiatry in a pandemic. <laughs> so I read this article 
40 tips to tell your patients to deal with the pandemic resilience. Well, I'll have them sleeping by number five. So on a post-it note, which I still have in my office, I wrote down what I thought were eight of the, the top ways to deal with stress. Social connection, be positive, humor. We haven't touched on humor yet. Exercise. But what's funny, if, if my muscles are aching and I'm, I'm worried about falling and I'm, I'm having, you know, I've lost a lot. What's funny, Sue? What, where's, where does humor come from? I, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think, I, I think as, as hard as all those things are, sometimes you can find humor in it. Um, <laughs> I've, in the last two weeks, I've fallen twice on the same set of stairs coming out of my gardens. And after the second time, I, I really had to laugh. And I, I just made a joke of it saying, those darn stairs are out to get me. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, obviously, it's, it's the Parkinson's. But, you know, you have to have those moments of levity because if you don't, you, you make yourself crazy. Okay. You know, and the humor might not be related to the Parkinson's. Yeah, that too. It's, just it's something aside. Life experiences. But, but humor is a great coping mechanism. Okay, continue. We've got about a minute left. A couple more points on your list. A couple more points. Routine and structure. That is so mm-hmm. important. You get up at the same time. Follow a routine. It could be your meals. It could be exercise. It could be social contacts. It could be work. It could be when you go to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't lose sight of, of, of routine. The other thing, if we are watching television news 12 hours straight, 12 hours straight, that can be traumatic too if if you're watching all the happenings of the world. So sometimes right. we have to dial that back. Absolutely. I, uh, our, our time has come to a close, and I, I just want to thank all of our guests today. And just personally, I've learned way more about Parkinson's disease than I, I thought I would, and I, and I have been really inspired by your stories of resilience. So thank you to our listeners who called in as well. Uh, our guest today, as we've talked about Parkinson's disease, we've been hearing from uh, Dr. Paul Tewitt, a neurologist with M Health Fairview and a professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Thank you, Dr. Tewitt, as well as Sue Olson, who lives in Mankato, who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2021, and Sue has walked in the 31-mile challenge for Parkinson's research as well. And Sue's husband is here with us as well, Dr. Robert Olson, a psychiatrist there at the Mankato Clinic. Thank you all for your time today. And I want to remind you that this conversation was made possible in part by you. So support NPR News. We uh, are funded by listeners like you. And now through June 9th, the NPR Member Fund is making it even easier for you to show your support by matching new monthly donations for a full year. Make your first gift today at mprnews.org. This conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.